Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This is radio's answer to culinary conversation and inspiration. I'm all about the culture of food and living the best life, and here we celebrate food and its ability to feed the soul. I'm always serving up seconds at ChefJamie.com, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ChefJamieGwen. And because food is life, I hope that you'll create and savor yours this hour. I have culinary experts and visionaries with tips, tricks, and techniques to be truly inspiring to make you the best cook you know. These are the renowned culinarians that are sparking new ideas around the world. So take a seat down at your kitchen table and dish with me as we share the truly delicious side of life. I was hoping to wax poetic at the beginning of this hour about a homey French staple that has been cozying up to become an American classic. It has been many years, in fact, that the French and our French friends have been making duck confit. And there are few foods more indulgent than that beautiful leg of duck, tender meat, crisp skin. Oh, it's one of my favorites. And Confit, the method of cooking meat in some sort of melted fat, has long been a common practice to preserve or for preservation. And while its popularity has grown in the fine dining world, it is not just for meat anymore. And home cooks are creating creative confits at home. Now, you can confit garlic cloves and shallots and fish and lemons and fennel. I love a vegetable confit. In fact, it's usually made in olive oil as opposed to animal fat. But if you haven't attempted a confit at home, I shared some chef's tips in my Think Like a Chef feature this week, and I wanted to give some guidelines to walk you through the process. Now, it's not difficult or complicated at all, but it does take some time. And I think for great cooks, confit is a brilliant method to master. It is, by the way, not for the weak of heart or for fat-free eaters. Okay, don't touch your dial. I believe in everything in moderation, especially moderation. Um, But it takes a significant amount of time and fat to preserve proteins. The beauty of it is that it is not a greasy end result, but one that is beautifully tender and so very worth it. And I can think of few foods that are as delicious and indulgent as, let's say, a duck confit salad with the fall-off-the-bone meat set atop a bed of frise lettuce and adorned with a, a bitey sherry vinaigrette and garnished with slices of fresh pear and crumbled blue cheese and a few scattered candy pecans, and then maybe a poached egg to gild the lily. 
Okay, I've successfully made myself hungry, and hopefully you were tempted to lick your radio. But what is confit by definition? Well, meat confit is made from meat that has been salt cured for a few days and then slowly cooked in melted fat. And usually the fat comes from the animal itself. And it is sealed in the fat to preserve it. And again, the result is this incredibly tender, flavorful meat that has the similar succulence of pulled pork. Now, you can make confit out of duck and goose and rabbit. Those are the most common. Then, of course, you can attempt chicken. There's a wonderful recipe from Mark Bittman where he makes a chicken confit that will trump any roast chicken uh, anywhere, I guarantee. And making confit is more of a technique than a recipe. There are a few basics when it comes to the ratios and the cooking times, but the spice mixture and the protein you choose or the vegetable for that matter is up to you. Now there's a wonderful fennel, lemon, and garlic confit recipe that I've posted at chefjamie.com and it makes an extraordinary side dish. But for the basic steps for a meat confit, you salt the meat quite heavily in fact, and you refrigerate it for 24 hours and the salt seasons the meat and it starts to cure it for longer preservation. Now, I like to add a dry spice rub when I'm salting. It actually cuts down on the salt content and it adds extra flavor. And then you melt enough fat to cover all of the meat. And again, if you choose to go the olive oil route, you don't need to use extra virgin olive oil, but only a good pure olive oil, one that's not too pricey and that you can buy in large quantity. You rinse the salt or salt rub off the meat. You pat it dry. You add it to the pot with the melted fat. It needs to cover all the way. And you can cook the meat on the stovetop or in the oven. And either way, you see a few occasional bubbles coming up to the surface. And the fat should stay around 190 degrees. And you cook it slowly for several hours until the meat is just fall off the bone delicious. Now you let the meat cool while still in the fat to room temperature and then you can transfer it for long-term storage in the fat or you can drain it out and keep it in the fridge till you're ready to use and the flavor itself continues to improve with age. Now when you're ready to use your confit, I like to wipe the meat of any excess fat. And by the way, you can use that fat to cook other things. And then you just reheat the pieces. The skin of, let's say, duck or chicken gets incredibly crispy. The meat stays moist. And because it's so beautifully rich, it is best paired with lighter dishes like salads or vegetables, of course. You can always take the meat from the bone chop it into smaller pieces and use it in raviolis or risotto or pasta sauces. Now, if you didn't notice on the Tasting Table website, one of my favorite resources for fabulous food, Eric and Bruce Bromberg posted their secret weapon, and it is super simple, but it's a shallot confit. And there's something really beautiful about the caramelization of sweet shallots across of garlic and onion. And all you do is you pack the shallots tightly into an oven-proof dish, and you uh, pour enough olive oil over to cover, and then you bake Bake them at 325 for an hour and a half or two hours, and you can use them for a few weeks at least. Uh, they throw in a few thyme sprigs. You could use fresh herbs from your garden, and I will tell you, the next time that you throw them into roasted root vegetables or a stuffing or you want to serve them alongside chicken or fish or on top of a big, beautiful burger, 
The shallot confit is amazing. So everything you need to know to become a confit expert posted at chefjamie.com along with a few other things you won't want to miss this week, like my lime grilled fish tacos with chipotle sauce and fresh cilantro slaw. I think it's a great go-to recipe for any night of the week and everybody loves fish tacos, right? I've also posted my husband's perfect meal under uh, the seasonal celebrations section, skillet roasted clams alongside crusty French bread or even potato chips for dipping. Oh, it's the ultimate and made with the really good quality Chardonnay. And then you toast, of course, with the remaining Chardonnay in the bottle. I mean, what else would you do? Uh, Lots of great garlic and red pepper flake flavor, uh, the juice of a lemon, and just a little bit of unsalted butter to finish the clams make for the ultimate seafood meal. For those with a sweet tooth, I've posted a vanilla bean flan, an impressive crowd-pleasing dessert. And then with the cider revolution happening now, uh, a twist on a winter warmer. It's a spiked cider punch. And once again, chefjamie.com will arm you with everything you need to be a culinary hero. Now don't touch your dial because there is so much scintillating, scrumptious conversation yet to come. I am really flattered and honored to welcome Mimi Sheraton, the acclaimed restaurant critic. To the radio waves once again, she's sharing her top 1,000 foods to eat before you die. This is a woman who has eaten around the world, and you will not want to miss her advice. Plus, Margarita Martinez is sitting down to talk cheese with us, and she will create the ultimate cheese plate for you. Plus, we're designing your ultimate fantasy kitchen. Architect Stephen Jones stops by just before the end of the hour. So don't touch your dial. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with more fabulous food right after this. It's delicious, it's divine, it's food and wine and everything I love. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, welcome back. The Cabot Creamery is a cooperative owned and operated by its members, 1,200 dairy farm families, in fact, located throughout New England and upstate New York. And with an emphasis on craftsmanship, Cabot produces award-winning cheeses, premium butter, delicious Greek-style yogurt, cottage cheese, and sour cream in Vermont, New York, and Massachusetts. The Cabot Creamery is recognized across the country as the best in its class, and they've just released their first cookbook, an honest-to-goodness collection of recipes and stories from real dairy farmers who have always understood that good food begins with great ingredients, and I agree. It is a rich collection of 150 easy-to-follow recipes for everyone that loves cheese and milk, and really good dairy. And Margarita Martinez is the spokesperson for Cabot Creamery. She is a New England Emmy-nominated television host with an insatiable appetite for travel and food, and she is here to dish. I'm glad to have you, Margarita. Welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks. Of course. Okay, tell us about the collaborative effort, if you would, that makes up 
Cabot Creamery because it's really, I think, one of those wonderful stories across America that still has a a very pure roots, I would say, and and continues, yeah, a very rich history. Absolutely. It's almost 100 years old is the Cabot Creamery. In 1919, 94 farmers around Cabot, Vermont, decided to get a creamer, purchase a creamery so that they could ship their butter down to Boston. And now it's grown to, like you said, 1,200 farm families. And it's 100% owned by the farmers, and they share 100% of the profit. So it's really unique, and you can feel really great about getting a quality Cabot products at the store and also know that you're supporting New England and upstate New York farmers. Yeah, that's what I love. I love the idea of a co-op. I think that it is very much at the root of what we believe in here in America, and there are stories throughout the book of the families that get up at four in the morning to milk the cows. And you visited some of those farms. Tell us about one of your experiences, if you would. Uh, Yeah, so I actually spent some time at Liberty Hill Farm in Rochester, Vermont. And that's run by Bob and Beth Kennett and their two sons. Hmm. And they also, I mean, it's a reality of farming uh, these days that a lot of farmers have other sources of income and other businesses. So they run a really great bed and breakfast as well. Uh, so it's really neat to be there, and they have about 150 cows, and like you said, it's it's a way of life. It's not just a job. It's something you can't really take vacation, hmm. and you're there getting up early, and you're always on call. So it's a real lifestyle of it, and it was just really neat because they both come, Bob and Beth both come from farm families, and it's been in their families for years and years, and it's a part of their life. And Beth just serves these wonderful breakfasts and dinner every single day as a part of her bed and breakfast, these huge spreads. And I also love, and she's just a really great spokesperson for Cabot. She's traveled all over the country promoting Cabot and talking about it and giving cooking demonstrations. So they're just a really neat couple and family. Oh, neat. I, I love the, I, I really love that family feel. We should start with dessert first because life is very uncertain. You just never <laughs> yes, know, right? And one of the recipes in the cookbook that I can't wait to try is the Liberty Hill Farms fudgy yogurt tart. And there's something yes. to be said for the fact that Greek-style yogurt has made its way into all of our kitchens, whether it be breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I mean, I make ranch dressing, Greek yogurt-based now. Um, we we eat it for breakfast. I'll uh, mix in fresh dill and Meyer lemon juice to top uh, poached salmon. I mean, there, there are wonderful uses, yes. But I haven't baked with it much. And I love the idea of a chocolate cake made with Greek yogurt. Yeah, so it's um, it's the fudgy yogurt, yogurt tort. It's very chocolatey. I actually had it. Um, Beth did make it for me when I visited Liberty Hill Farm. And there's something about, I mean, Greek yogurt is really versatile, and in baking, it gives a different texture. It's a little lighter. She also makes really great pancakes with it. Mm. Um, yeah, so this nice. one was just really great, and um, it makes a frosting that's not as dense. It's a little lighter, a little creamier in taste. So that's a really a really nice texture that she has both in her frosting and in her cake. Let's go back to yogurt for just a moment because uh, it is a blank canvas and you can use it sweet and savory, but there's a wonderful sort of map in the book for lots of different 
uh, dairies, starting with yogurt, all of the wonderful things that you can do to create a flavorful dip that is yogurt-based. So whether it be garlic and feta or the curried style or the chipotle avocado and lime, that sounds so good. Um, But the book talks about making – I know, I'm starving. Uh, The book talks about (laughs) making um, labneh. Or labna, the um, Middle Eastern Mediterranean uh, yogurt that is sort of thicker and richer. Can you talk us through it? Sure. Um, so what you do is that you can take your Greek-style yogurt and you wrap it tightly in a cheesecloth, and then you set it on a colander, and then you place the you put some pressure on top. So you put about a plate, and then you can put water, or a can of beans, or something like that on top, and then you leave it for twelve hours in the fridge, and then you unwrap and you can scrape your yogurt cheese from the cheesecloth into a small bowl, and then you can add whatever you want. Uh, so you can add uh, herbs, lemon juice, capers, uh, paprika, diced onion. Uh, so it, it makes this different consistency that's much thicker that you can use as a dip or a spread for your dishes. Yeah, what, when I think of labne, I think of yogurt cheese, and I've made it for years. My mom always made yogurt cheese from regular yogurt, and it's only gotten better with the Greek-style yogurt. It has this wonderful texture. It's just so thick and delicious, and it's a great way to remove the excess water, the whey, from the the yogurt itself and just get a, a delicious, creamy mixture. I have yogurt cheese in the fridge right now as we speak. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're ready. I'm, I'm ready. Okay. Another one of the maps um, talks to grilled cheese. And every Cabot Farm family, um, as you've written in the book, says that uh, they have their ultimate grilled cheese combination. So what's the best you've tasted? Oh, the best I've tasted? Well, um, I actually have a grilled cheese sandwich in the cookbook, a recipe, and it's with red onion and sauteed red onion and apple and then um, a vintage cheddar cheese and a sharp light cheddar cheese so kind of mellowing out the um, the ageness of the of the vintage and I really enjoy that and that's I just love having the the red onion and the apple and the cheddar I think is a really good nice nice balance and then I like a little bit of heat so I put a little mustard on my grilled cheese Yes, me um, too. Something else that I really like is one, Rachel Freund, who's from Freund Farm, and she is a grilled cheese expert because she actually uh, worked at a grilled cheese stand at University of Vermont. She volunteered there and it raised funds for the Hunger Project. So not only is she an expert because she's a dairy farmer, but also because she was manning this grilled cheese stand. She's got the griddled Rachel sandwich. Yes. And she's got pickle relish and sauerkraut, and she uh, has cooked turkey, and then uh, she uses the, the legacy alpine cheese, which is a little bit like a cheddar mixed with a Parmesan flavor. And that is just really, really delicious. Um, it's kind of like a Reuben, and I love Reubens. Yes, so, me too. Except with turkey. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and falls under the category of grilled cheese as long as there's lots of oozy, ooey-gooey cheese. Um, oozing yeah, from everything from together. the sandwich. Exactly. <laughs> um, leave us with this. The perfect cheese plate, I think, is a variety of mild and stronger flavored cheeses, as uh, the book outlines. What's your perfect cheese plate? N- name a few, if you would. Oh, okay. Well, I, I love ricotta. Mm. So I would have that, um, you know, kind of has a, a mild cheese that's creamy. And then, oh, a triple cream 
Brie. Yes. I absolutely love it. Mm. We'll eat rind and everything. And then um, with the cheddar, there's a black wax um, aged cheddar from Cabot that is actually absolutely delicious. I love having it at cocktails and, you know, with friends and entertaining. Nice. And then um, I really like gorgonzola. I love blue cheese and, um, and having that. So that would kind of be my ideal cheese plate right okay. at this moment. I, I was going to say today and tomorrow that it might change. Um, I'm, exactly. a, I'm a gorgonzola <laughs> dolce lover. I love the mm. creamy sweetness to it. So I shall sit down to a cheese plate with you any day. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Lots of wonderful recipes in the new cookbook release from the Cabot Creamery entitled the Cabot Creamery Cookbook. I think it's a wonderful reminder of what really matters. You almost feel like you've connected with the farm. And it is uh, a really wonderful tradition of fresh flavorful, beautiful dairy. Uh, You'll find an excerpted recipe at chefjamie.com. And you can, of course, watch Margarita Martinez on her New England Emmy-nominated television show on PBS. And you can find lots more recipes as well at cabotcheese.coop. Thank you, Margarita, so much for sharing your passion. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. As the delicious conversation continues, there's more inspiring information right after this. Food lovers, don't go away. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, heating it up with grand guests and gastronomic pleasures. And we do have the best culinary thinkers on this show. Already a bestseller on Amazon just two weeks after its release, Mimi Sheridan's 1,000 Foods to Eat Before You Die, based on the infamous travel book of places to visit during one's lifetime, of course, is a food lover's dream. It is a mouth-watering life list of the world's best food. And it's the long-awaited new book, a marriage of an irresistible subject and an incredibly respected author. She is Mimi Sheridan, the award-winning cookbook author, the grand dame of food journalism, and the former restaurant critic for the New York Times. And there's no doubt she has been a pioneer in culinary prose. I am delighted to have you on the radio for the first time, Mimi. So welcome and congratulations. What a book. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you so much for... All of that. Of I'm course. delighted to be with you oh, and thank you. Uh, happy to be talking <laughs> about what took me 10 years to do. Okay, so tell us about the way you culminated the information, because it's really an incredible compilation. I mean, aside from the fact it's a fabulous read. Well, that's what I like to hear most of all, being a writer. Um, I just began when, when we decided with Workman to go ahead with this, of just writing down everything that came into my head that I thought might be part of it. Hmm. And I wound up with almost 1,800 things, you know, because as I say in the uh, introduction to A Thousand Foods to Eat Before You Die, it's somewhat of an autobiography. For the last 60 years, this is what I've been going in search of. This is what I've been experiencing. So uh, most of it came out of my head and out of my memories. And then... I began to cut down the number to 1,000, but also 
to spread it around the world, to not have everything Italian, French, and American, which I could easily have done, but that's not the idea. The idea is to learn about foods that you've never heard of, to maybe get curious enough to go or to try them, and everything in the book is somehow available, whether it's a restaurant one travels to, whether it's a, um, a food market that has the ingredients or an online source for the uh, hard-to-find ingredients, mm. uh, recipes that I chose that I thought best represented the way I thought a dish should be prepared, and um, wonderful, wonderful mail-order sources and online recipes all throughout the book. And it was those things that made the project take 10 years, finding the sources. I think the resources, Mimi, are extraordinary. It's a, it's a combination autobiography, no doubt, as you mentioned, an encyclopedia, because it's divided into cultures. So if you're craving Chinese, as you mentioned, not only do you give the destination, but you'll give some insight into the best Chinese recipes. And I love that because for home cooks, for explorers, for travel buffs, for those that love to dine out, there's something for everyone. I wonder, after 10 years of, uh, I mean, writing it all down, and putting it together, and 60 years, as you've said, of um, exploration. What do you crave? <laughs> I think that depends on the day and the <laughs> weather. When I'm really tired and want comfort food, I crave fried eggs mm. or linguine with white clam sauce oh, yes. or any number of Chinese dishes. Mm-hmm. And um, But, mm. you know, every once in a while I remember, let's say, a dish I had in Copenhagen or something marvelous I had in Hanoi, and for whatever reason, that's what I feel like eating at the moment. I can't always find all of it, even here in New York, but um, there is a a pretty good selection. Uh, One dish that, that this is kind of funny, that one of my favorite Chinese dishes that I simply forgot, although it was on my first list of what goes in the book, is the Sichuan uh, tofu and pork dish called Mapo Dofu, and I was sure I had written it, and then when the galleys came, I said to the editor, where is Mapo Dofu? She said, you never gave me any copies of that. <laughs> so I have, a, it's really a thousand and one. Right. I ought to put out a little book, the one thing that is not in a thousand foods to eat before you die. But that it's one of my comfort foods, even though it's very, very spicy. Uh, where does one go for Mapo Dofu. Almost any Sichuan restaurant. Okay, and, and it's the chilies. If I had to test a Sichuan restaurant yes. by only one dish, that would be it. Really? Okay. And do you test Tuscany by Frito Misto? And do you test uh, truffles in Le Perigord? I mean, these are the, the places that we know as diehard foodies. You go to the source, right? I mean, as exactly. you, you spoke about Frito Misto, and it did conjure up memories for me of travel to Italy. Yeah, and, and of the there, flavors. Most people think of the fish. Right. Frito Misto, but the Tuscan one with mm. sweetbreads and brains mm. and liver and zucchini and artichokes and so mm. on 
is a delicious one also. So good. You're making me hungry, Mimi. Me too. (laughs) By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late. She is Mimi Sheridan, the extraordinary journalist with, uh, as she mentions, uh, 60 plus years of critique and incredible prose uh, all about this wonderful world of food that we live in. Mimi, we have to take a quick break, but please stay with us. She is the acclaimed restaurant critic and the author of The Top 1,000 Foods to Eat Before You Die. Don't touch your dial. Chef Jamie Gwen. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We are dishing with Mimi Sheraton, the acclaimed restaurant critic and author of the recently released Top 1000 Foods to Eat Before You Die. Uh, Mimi, I must say I'm very jealous. I um, have had the privilege of speaking with Grant Ackett on this program. He has graced this show. Oh, he's superb. I oh. just think Alinea, which is an entry in the book, yes. was a revelation to me. I, I would have to agree, but I have not dined there. So can you take us on a brief virtual experience of dinner at Chicago's Alinea? Yeah, well, you know, I went somewhat skeptically. I'm pretty much of a traditionalist, and of course this is billed as um, molecular, which isn't really what it is, but as good a word as any. And the way the dishes were presented, these specific um, serving pieces he had done to mm-hmm. show each food off to its best advantage, and as unlikely as the combination sounded, when you ate it, you were not shocked. You were. It was more of course than Wow, how did he ever think of this? I mean, it was just good food when all was said and done. There was a marvelous strip of bacon that he deconstructs and then reconstructs and serves hung on a beautiful, I guess it was brass, maybe it was gold, kind of a hook, so the bacon could hang free and not become soggy on one side that touched the surface. And I was especially tickled by a dish he presented, which was, it looked sort of like a plaster globe with no opening, and it was served with a wooden hammer, and I was told to smash the bowl open, which I did, and inside was a wonderful, essentially a Japanese donburi steamed dish of broth and meat and rice and so on. Mm. Um, and so although everything looked funny and sounded odd, the test is in the eating, the proof of the pudding, as they say. And I once heard Thomas Keller say in a talk about creative food, his plotting words were, remember it has to taste good. Hmm. And uh, so that was it. But also Alinea is a stunning restaurant. It's yes. spacious, it's quiet, it's uh, luxurious without being pretentious, and a marvelously uh, informed staff who, again, are not pretentious. So that's a big help, because pretentiousness is, to me, the worst sin. Yeah, well, I agree with you, and I I love that about you. Leave us with this. A frozen Milky Way made your top 1,000 foods to eat before you die list. It was the first thing I chose, and the second was caviar, and that defined the range of the book. Frozen Milky Way is something I grew up with in Brooklyn Mm. and still uh, 
put in the freezer once in a while. <laughs> and caviar may be my single favorite food. Well, I would toast you with a, a pearl spoon of caviar anytime. Congratulations to you on an extraordinary culinary adventure, that which you have taken us along with you for the ride. It is an incredibly knowledgeable, discerning, discerning guide, rather, uh, of the world's best dishes, ingredients, restaurants, and food-related experiences, and it is written and curated by Mimi Sheridan, of course, a culmination of her six-decade-long love affair with food. Mimi, it was a pleasure. I thank you and uh, certainly appreciate your knowledge and your palate, and I hope that you'll come back on the show and join us again soon. Anytime you say, Jamie, (laughs) and thank you. you very much. It's our pleasure. Thank you very much. There's more inspiring conversation in your radio right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Okay, so everything is on the table when it comes to the wide world of food that we discuss. And as you know, I love to eat and drink, to investigate food, to travel for food, and to delve deeper into this beautiful world we all love. And so how does restaurant design equate to a food lover's world? Well, Designing a restaurant is like designing a sports car, says architect Stephen Jones. It has a sleek-looking body that needs a big engine and has to perform at top speed all the time. So how does he make the restaurant designs he creates look sexy and keep them running well? Stephen Jones, well-known for his restaurant designs like MB Post in Manhattan Beach, the retro chain Lucky Strike Lanes, and the original Wolfgang Puck's Spago in Beverly Hills, continues to be one of, I will say, the food scene's secret weapons. He is the restaurant designer everyone wants. And he's here to offer some insight into the makings of a great restaurant and how you can parlay this knowledge into your next kitchen makeover at home. I welcome you, Stephen, and I'm glad to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Okay, you say... And I've done some homework on you. And I love looking into restaurant design because I think you're setting the trends for home kitchen design, for home makeovers, for all of us who aspire to, you know, the greatest cutting edge kitchen ever. You say that when people go out to dinner, their expectation is to have a stimulating sensual experience involving taste, ambiance, and social interaction. And I quote, you, of course. Um, how do you make the visual experience as delicious as the food? Tell us about your perspective, please. Well, first of all, you know, I try to make sure that I truly understand the concept and what the chef is, you know, trying to do, be it, you know, food to table, tapas type of, a, of an environment where you have share plates, or if it is uh, a little bit more of a, a fine dining where the food is prepared behind the scenes, and um, and the and the dining uh, experience is you know a quieter setting. So you know to make sure that I I've got the 
the multiple ways of being able to uh, lay out a kitchen, I uh, try to make sure I, I get that matching up right off the bat. It makes complete sense to me. It, before I let you go, I have always considered that um, Asia is is very forward thinking, um, maybe more so in uh, from a design perspective than we are in the U.S. Um, and of course, it seems um, only reasonable that you would be working there to keep your finger on the pulse. I'd love to know how U.S. restaurants differ from. Asian build-outs. I know you've been working on donut shops in Japan, and I find that fascinating. The concept I was working on was uh, um, called Mr. Donuts, and it was a uh, residual franchise from the U.S. that was eventually bought by Dunkin' Donuts. And, Mm. um, you know, one of the things that that, um, we had to do uh, was to, to be able to bring the experience of the donuts um, or preparing the donuts to be a little bit more of the theater. I mean, it had, you know, over the years in the U.S., you had seen a lot of, like, donut shops that, you know, exposed the, um, the donut preparation area to, to the people. But it also it meant that you had to um, keep the clean kitchen all the time so right. that, you know, it was a lot of maintenance. So of what we did in, in, the, in Mr. Donuts is we basically, we had a little little hole kind of uh, um, designed so that from the outside, as you're walking in, you see a little glimpse of the cook line and uh, how the donuts make. If you, if you got up a little closer, you could actually watch the sequence of the stuff. Yeah, something to learn from. And I love the idea of just a sneak peek into the donut-making world, just enough to make you hungry, right? Just enough to make you hungry <laughs> and to make it intri- make intriguing. Intriguing, yes. <laughs> and, and I love that idea. Whether creating an instantly recognizable identity for national restaurants or cutting-edge quarters for a high-end dining destination, Stephen Jones is creating the dynamic environment that you love to dine in. So next time you're looking for tips and tricks, look for the sign that says Stephen Jones Architect. You can, SF Jones Architect. Thank you. And you, we can find you at sfjones.com, right? Yes. Fabulous. Thank you for sharing uh, a glimpse into the, uh, into the other side. I really appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks for sharing Great. your Thank passion. Thank you very much. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of Sizzling Good Eats. I hope that you've enjoyed the shared wisdom and that we've given you some food for thought and that you're inspired to cook this week. I hope that you'll tune in in the coming Sundays, of course, as the culinary information abounds. But I'll leave you with this, what I like to call my last bite or ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration and very much inspired by our cheesy conversation earlier in the hour. I am going straight to my fridge after this show and making my own cheese log for a quick appetizer before Sunday supper tonight with a glass of wine poured alongside, of course. I bet you have some goat cheese or blue cheese or other soft cheeses in your fridge right about now. You can actually leave them independent, individual, or you can blend them together for a taste sensation. But make your own goat cheese log by 
adding additional flavor enhancers and then rolling the log in some fabulously textured and full of flavor coating. Now, just remember that the cheese is better rolled and served at just cooler than room temperature for that really smooth texture. And you can blend in honey or maple syrup for a sweet note or maybe jalapenos for heat or fresh herbs for an herbaceous twist. And then consider rolling your homemade cheese log in a bevy of coatings like chopped dried cranberries mixed with pistachios or cracked pepper and fresh thyme. The flavor possibilities are endless and you should cater them, of course, to your palate. Plus, it's like Play-Doh for grown-ups. I mean, how much fun is that to make your own homemade cheese logs? I'll post my best flavor combinations on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I hope that you'll stop by for more inspiration to ChefJamie.com all throughout the week. I will meet you here next Sunday as the delicious conversation continues. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well.